Good morning. Just a, a little bit of, well, first of all, I am so glad to be up here this morning. And uh, as we sing that song, just uh, I've been very cognizant of that my sins are many. Uh, but we arrive here today, all of us, knowing that his mercy is truly more. It's not just something that we, we have a mental assent towards, but our, uh, I pray that you would just believe it with all of your heart that your sins have been forgiven. Um, just want to, um, I don't know if Chad said it in both services last week, but he said it in the first service. He just kind of acknowledged that, you know, just kind of gave me a charge as I'm on my way out. Just want you to know that we had, we had put a date in the, a line in the sand as September 1st that I was going to be kind of transitioning to, you know, whatever, you know, dog catcher, bread truck driver, I don't know what it is, but transitioning from my role here. But I'm, I'm still here. And um, so kind of like a bad cold. You just can't get rid of me. Um, so I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, God's timing is perfect. Um, his word is perfect, and it will accomplish what he wants to accomplish this morning, uh, particularly as we submit um, our hearts uh, to it this morning. So let's pray together. God, we praise you that for the reality um, that we sing and that we need your help in believing that even though our sins are many, God, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. And I pray, God, that we would live uh, and walk um, inside of the reality that we have been forgiven, that we've been forgiven much. And God, I pray this morning that, um, that you would be most visible this morning. God, I pray that I would um, stand behind your word, that I bring no offense to your word. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would bring, that you would bear your word upon our hearts and souls and that we would understand in a more profound way the mercy of God and that it would come with us to go extend loving mercy toward you. We love you and we praise you and we pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. So we have, um, I've uh, joked in the past that um, Chad and Steve have got some pretty like easy passages and then Chad last week gets like 49 verses and I get a couple of like really well-known passages the next few weeks. Uh, today's a good Samaritan. Um, arguably the best known uh, parable in all of scripture. Uh, it's impacted the church, Big C Church for 2,000 years and it's also impacted the culture that we live in. That um, pretty much everybody knows the parable of the good, of the good Samaritan. But it's also probably one of the most, um, uh, one of the parables that's taken out of context the most. Um, and uh, we're gonna teach it in the context uh, of the way Luke uh, means for it to be taught um, in this narrative. Um, after studying this passage, I came up with my own definition of a good Samaritan. It should be up on the screen. A good Samaritan sees a helpless and hopeless person sets aside his own comfort and agenda and extends loving mercy in order to alleviate that person's suffering. One of the, the greatest challenges that we're going to have this morning as we think about neighbor is that we're going to, we're going to define neighbor too narrow. We're going to define neighbor as strictly our family and fellow Christians in our church or people that think like us or maybe sin bigger than us aren't really our neighbors. Just the other day, actually it was Friday, 
of, I kind of, I don't watch the news and I don't really read the news like I'm a skimmer of the news. I look for headlines. And I saw this headline of this new record being broke uh, for uh, the fastest people to summit, all 14 of the 26,000 foot peaks. And um, there's a well-known mountaineer who just broke the record. Uh, she and her Sherpa and a small team became the fastest people to summit all 14 of these 26,000 uh, foot mountains, um, uh, finishing at the top of K2 in the pa uh, Pakistan Himalayas. They completed this feat in three months and one day, and they surpassed the previous record that was set in 2019 of six months and six days. They smashed it, not by a second, but by <coughs> three months. I tell you this story because there's, there's camera footage that shows his record-breaking team on a narrow, uh, harrowing uh, uh, path that has cliffs on one side that if you fall off, you'll die. And this footage shows this lady and her Sherpa and her team stepping over the body of a fallen Sherpa of another team <coughs> who later died during this record-breaking ascent. We don't know exactly what happened there. We don't know who's complicit, but it connects to this story. I've never stepped over a dying man that I know of. I did play rugby for six years. In, in a scrum, you don't really know who's living, breathing, bleeding, or whatever. But I've never knowingly stepped over a dying man. But there's been times, there's been many times, where I've walked past a helpless, hopeless, suffering person who God in his providence put in my path. And I often chose to take the selfish, non-sacrificial path around that helpless, hopeless, suffering person. And I can, I can justify it for all kinds of good reasons, including I have more important things to do. I'm on a tight schedule. I'm too busy. I don't really know that person. I have enough problems of my own. And the worst reason that I can think of is that maybe that suffering person deserved what they got. Nancy and I, um, in talking about this passage and just kind of reflecting on our life in ministry and our life before ministry, we all have a life in ministry, but professional ministry, paid ministry, we reflect upon times that by God's grace, we've been moved by compassion to leave our comfort zone, set aside our fear, put aside our agenda, and extend loving mercy to helpless, hopeless sufferers that God put in our path. As we look back on it, we, uh, we, we have tears of joy. Um, none of it was hard. I mean, none of it was easy. It was all hard. Let me just give you a few examples. Many people have stayed with us over the years. Some healthy, many not so healthy. Some, maybe most, outstayed their welcome. There's a limit to my compassion and mercy. We've picked up people on the side of the road. We've brought homeless people home to a Thanksgiving meal. I confronted a strung out man who was breaking down the door of a young lady in this church. He was strung out on drugs and I confronted him. 
buying multiple beggars a meal and eating it with them, sharing the gospel with a family member at the risk of losing the relationship, going to a house where the wife was in danger only to knock on the door and from the other side of the door say, if you don't leave, I'm going to shoot you. And that particular man came to Christ in this church and was baptized. We've, we've dove into many broken marriages and lives of broken people. When we didn't have the time, and we actually, quite frankly, didn't have the answers. Maybe the most recent example is this, to show my selfishness and to show God's grace, is that uh, my pattern for preparing for a sermon is that I kind of marinate it for a period of time. It could, be, it could be a week, it could be two weeks, depending on what my rhythm is in preaching. And then I'll start writing on Thursday, I'll bring it to the preaching collective on Friday, and I'll spend most of Saturday, quite frankly, refining it. And as I, might, as I told you last week, there's this, there's this relationship, this relationship that we have that God has providentially put in our path of this woman who we are related to um, who is dying of cancer. And she does not know the way to eternal life. And I met with her last Sunday, and I texted her and asked when we could meet again this weekend. And, she, and I said, can we meet on Sunday? And then she texted me back and said, well, Saturday would be better. I go, come on. Like, I, mean, I got a sermon to prepare for you. Like, Lord, just keep her alive for another week so that we can share the gospel. And, um, and God just convicted me uh, through this, that, it's, that God providentially put her in my path. This was the time to meet with her, and that he would take care of the rest preparing for the sermon. And then so she lives down in Broomfield. I drove, drove down to Lafayette, and I was having coffee at Otis's Coffee Shop. If you want legit coffee, it's Otis's in Lafayette, and it's got a great bakery right across the way. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm ADD anyways. I don't know why I prepare coffee shops. Like there's a squirrel all the time. And I'm, I'm in the passage, uh, I'm in the commentary, I'm writing, and um, and then I get a text from her that said, I'm going to meet her at 4.30. And she says, can you come earlier? And I go, like, I'm not done with my Danish yet. Like, I need to come so I said, yes, I'll come between 3 and 3.30. She said, great. So my my, my time and the word is shrinking. I'm feeling the pressure. And then I get a text from a friend of mine whose marriage is in crisis and he is suffering and he is hopeless and he is helpless and he wants to talk. I want to talk. I've got a sermon to prepare. And the Spirit of God just compelled me by his mercy to mercifully call him back and minister with him. And I tell you those stories because I know I'm not alone. I know this is a place that we all find ourselves in from time to time. And I know many of you, and many of you have sacrificed um, your time and your efforts. And you've risked um, a discomfort to be able to serve other people. You've come upon people, come up, you've come upon people that are helpless and hopeless, and you are moved by compassion and you mercifully and lovingly serve them. On the other hand, I know that there's got to be times, if you're like me at all, there's got to be times that you can think of, maybe even recently, where God providentially placed someone in your life that was helpless and hopeless in their suffering, and you kept on walking. But there's, there's a remedy. 
We're not going to do this perfect, but there's a remedy so that next time that the Lord in his providence puts somebody in your path that is hopeless and helpless in their suffering, you can think through this grid, and this grid or this remedy is this. When we walk in the fresh captivation, in awe of Jesus' loving mercy, we will be compelled to extend loving mercy to others, even when it's inconvenient, risky, and messy. Let me just give you these two up here. They're a little bit more catchy. Eternal life is inherited through neighborly mercy, and neighborly mercy is our right response to eternal inheritance. I know that's a mouthful, but it's going to make sense. God's merciful rescue of helpless and hopeless sinners will move us to extend loving mercy to sufferers Suffers whom God providentially puts in our path. I'll have it back up there on the screen at the end of the sermon as well. So here we are. In today's passage, Jesus will answer a series of questions from a Bible scholar, from an expert of the law. And the first question this expert is going to ask is, how do I inherit eternal life? And he will end with the question, the, the, the attorney, the, excuse me, the lawyer, the expert, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers these, and his answers aren't explicit, but they are nonetheless striking, if not surprising. And I would encourage you to see yourself in this passage. Don't, don't go, you know, somebody else needs to hear this. That's okay secondarily, but see yourself in this passage. And I've kind of structured this. I struggled with the structure. The verses 25 to 29 is, is law. It's a discussion around the law. Um, 30 to 35 is the parable that Jesus is going to um, use to teach this lawyer. And then 36 to 37, we're going to see the gospel in a very surprising way. We're going to see a command with a promise. A little bit of context of what's been happening in happening Luke's narrative. Uh, Jesus, back in chapter 9, let the cat out of the bag. That is, he is in fact the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one. Uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has come to set the captives free from the penalty and the power of sin. Further, he informed um, his followers that he would receive his crown and take up his throne in Jerusalem as they expected, but through a death and a resurrection. And then at the end of verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus, or Luke writes this, when the days drew near, for Jesus to be taken up, to die and to be resurrected, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of his execution. This section of scripture today, this parable, takes place on the road to Jerusalem where Jesus will lay down his life. Let's jump into the passage. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer is not like any lawyer that you know, other than he's a good arguer like most lawyers. He is an expert of the law, but it's God's law. It's the law that was handed down by God to Moses to Israel. Another title for this lawyer is, uh, or this expert of law, is a scribe of God's word. And this lawyer actually asked the most important question that any human being could ask. In fact, it's the question that every human being should ask before their life expires. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
His question is spot on, but he asks it with the wrong heart, as we see in the passage here. He doesn't really want to know Jesus' response. His question isn't sincere. It's a test for Jesus. Unfortunately, it's not a test for the expert's own heart. I find it interesting that he asks about inheriting eternal life, but asks, what shall I do? The expert is looking for an answer that most of the world religions give to this question. Do this. Do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. That's how you get to eternal life. But our, inter our eternal inheritance is not something we do. It's something we receive from someone we know. Our inheritance doesn't come from something we do, but it's something that we receive from someone that we know. So Jesus, being an expert in God's law himself, turned the tables on the attorney in verse 26 and answered him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? In asking this question, Jesus identifies himself not as a rebel against the law, but as a Jewish insider. One that uh, wishes to, um, to honor and to um, obey the teaching of the law handed down by God. He asks the lawyer a question concerning their shared source of God's authority. It's the, it's the lawyer's source of God's authority, and it's actually Jesus' source of God's authority. And it forces the expert to state what the Bible has to say about the question. How do I receive eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? Rather than relying on oral tradition or his own opinion. It's brilliant. The lawyer didn't hesitate to recite what has been called the great commandment, or the law of love. It's a combination of Deuteronomy 6.5, which comes from the Shema, which was recited twice a day by serious, um, by serious Jews, and Leviticus 19.18. He answers them in verse, uh, the, the lawyer answers Jesus in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus made him answer his own question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I must love the Lord my God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my strength and with all of my mind and my neighbor as myself. The lawyer was spot on. Perfect and continual obedience. Heart, soul, mind, and strength to the great commandment is a means of inheriting eternal life. It is absolutely a means. There's another way other than grace of inheriting eternal life, and that's perfect and continual obedience to God's directed will. However, God knew that his creation could never perfectly obey his directed will, the law, his commands. So adherence, adherence to God's law was never intended to be a strategy to get into heaven. It was given to Israel to, provoke, to, to provide a social and civil framework. It was also given to make men and women aware of their sinful nature and how we fall short of the glory of God. How we fall short of God's perfect standard. Paul was another expert in the law after he had come to Christ 
after Jesus saved him by grace, he wrote this in Romans 7, 9-11. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What he's saying here is that when I came to understand what God was asking of me, that's when sin became alive in me because I couldn't perfectly and continuously obey it. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, and you will receive eternal life. The very, the very commandment that promised life couldn't be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. You see, the law makes us aware of our propensity to do things our way rather than God's way, and it makes us aware of our inability to do it God's way. You see, all people sin and fall short of God's standard. Therefore, no one is justified by the law. No one is declared innocent by the law. And justified, by the way, is a legal term that indicates that no one will be declared to be righteous by God as a result of our works. It's been justified by the law. Next, Jesus, we're going to see Jesus affirms the lawyer's answer is correct. And then he gives a command with promise. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. Do this, and you will what? You will live. The opposite is true. As God told Adam and Eve in the garden, do this. Eat of the tree. Go against my directive will, and you will die. If the lawyer were honest with himself, he knew he fell short of God's standard for inheriting eternal life. What he asks next is something that every human being is prone to do. And this thought process keeps many religious people from inheriting eternal life. Here it is. It's when we evaluate our love for God and others on a sliding scale. When we compare our good deeds with the deeds of others, and we think, I'm doing a pretty good job at X. Y or Z in comparison to what? We don't get into heaven. We don't, we don't inherit eternal life on a sliding scale by being just better than the next guy. Uh, the, uh, this, this, I'll say this, and might raise some happens because um, many of you are like in different camps with different preachers and, and you're against different camps. There's a, there's a little book um, written by a guy by the name of Andy Stanley that doesn't have a lot of the same doctrine that I might. We, we, have, we both love Jesus. I'm going to see him in heaven. He's going to see me in heaven. We have some great discussions about doctrine. But he wrote this little book called uh, Since No One's Perfect, When Is Good Good Enough? And that's the question that every human being needs to answer. Since nobody's perfect, when is good good enough? And the obvious answer to that is it's never good. You can't be better than everybody else and still inherit eternal life. 
the most tangible litmus test for loving God. You know what that is? It's loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's not showing up on Sunday morning. It's not necessarily even studying your word. It's not, I mean, it's all, it includes a whole host of things. But it's most tangibly expressed. It's most tangibly manifest in loving our neighbor as ourself. Our neighbor is anybody created in the image of God that God has put it on. We're called to love our neighbor as an expression of loving God. And our neighbor is a neighbor regardless of race, wealth, citizenship, religion, or sexual identification. What you hear me your pause and go up notes from there. The Church of Jesus Christ is compromising one side or the other of the great man of the long world. They're either going to love without truth, which says that I will love you in your sin and not call you to trust in the Lord Jesus and to love him and to turn to your sin. That's, that's, that's the church's love without truth. We've got to hear the church with truth without love. Repent! Turn from your sin! How could you ever be doing that? Be like us. And what we need to be in the middle, the law of love is found in loving our neighbor who is helplessly and hopelessly stuck in their sin. They're suffering. And we come alongside them. I have sat the last two weeks, I don't know if she's listening, but I know she knows that I love her, but I've sat the last two weeks with a woman who is, um, who is gay and married to my sister, who is dying of cancer. And you know what I'm not bringing up? The fact that she's gay. You know why I'm not bringing that up? Because it doesn't matter. You know what matters? It's who is Jesus. And I've asked him. You need to come to the answer. You need to answer this question. Who is Jesus? And as we read God's word, you're going to see Jesus claim that he is God. And you're going to have one of three answers. He is God. He's a lunatic or he's a liar. And you know what happens when she comes to the understanding or any one of us comes to the understanding that Jesus is God and that our sins are many and that his mercy is more? We start seeing the word. We start seeing the commandment, the law, his directive will, and then we recognize that the way we're living our life is sin. So we start with grace. And we start with Jesus. I had a friend that used to be in this church, moved to Utah, and he was in college, and he was a, um, he didn't believe in creation. 
And he was discipled by a, uh, and he wasn't a Christian anymore. And he was discipled by somebody who was a navigator. And this man, name was Bob, my friend. And he just said, like, I can't believe that there was a God that came in the earth. And this expert evangelist and navigator said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. That's not the question we should be answering. The question is, who is Jesus? When Bob came to understand that he was a sinner and that Jesus came and saw him when he was helplessly and hopelessly stuck in his sin, dead in his sins and trespasses, and that he, he received the mercy of God, forgiveness of his sins, the, the, the words on the Bible just came alive. And you know what he acknowledges today? That there's a creator. <laughs> so the lawyer, thinking he's done a pretty good job of loving his definition of a neighbor, responds to Jesus, go and do this in your life. He responds to that with a seemingly innocent and natural question. The lawyer asks this in verse 29. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? According to the Jewish tradition, a neighbor was a member of national Israel. In other words, anyone who shared the Jewish faith and was a part of the Jewish commonwealth. This small circle certainly didn't include anyone who would make a Jew unclean. In asking this question, the expert in the law was trying to justify himself in that he did love his definition of a neighbor more than himself, and thus he was doing what needed to be done to inherit eternal life. He was justifying himself. The opposite of justification is condemnation. So not wanting to condemn himself to death and instead prove himself worthy of life, the expert attempts to justify himself rather than condemn and that he does love God and he loves his neighbor. And he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in asking that question, he's hoping for a narrow definition of neighbor on his terms. Can you relate with that? Sure. I'll love that person. He wishes to soften the demand and not feel a sense of obligation to love everyone as he loves himself. The expert, again, is looking for a minimum obedience where the law calls for complete and continual obedience. The expert might be thinking on this sliding scale that I described, where he knows he's done better and more than most he knows and therefore justifies himself as worthy of eternal life. Here's what he should have asked. Instead of justifying himself, should have asked, since I have failed to love God and my neighbor perfectly, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In that case, Jesus might have responded with the good news that he was headed to Jerusalem to accomplish. But next, Jesus tells his parable of the Good Samaritan. In order to answer the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? That's the context of the parable. He's answering the Jews' question. Or the uh, expert's question, who's my name? Verse 30. Jesus replied, 
A man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This road from Jericho to Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile journey. It started at 2,600 feet and finished at 825 feet below sea level. Not only was it physically exhausting, it was a victorious path where robbers hung out to exploit weary travelers. The thought of traveling on this road would tighten the stomachs of every first century traveler in the same way that we might tense up when somebody says you're going to walk down a dark alley in downtown Denver at night. This traveler was not only robbed, he was stripped, beaten, and left for dead. We're not told anything about this man, his race, his religion, his reputation, only that he was robbed, beaten, stripped, and left for dead. Instead, Jesus turns the focus of this parable on three men, three pastor of thoughts. Which one's going to help this man? The first man on the scene is the one that you might expect to show compassion and mercy and come alongside this dying man. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. A priest was the highest ranking religious person in the temple. He happened down the road. He sees the beaten and bloody man. It's important. He sees him. But instead of stopping to see if the man was still alive or needed help, he crosses to the other side of the road and he keeps on walking. Jesus doesn't give a reason for this. That starts to raise massive questions. Verse 32, Jesus continues to paint a poor picture of what neighborly love isn't as he describes a second religious man coming across the dining room. So, likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite is a temple worker, really second in charge to the priest. And he repeats the same loveless act. He sees the man and passes by on the other side of the road. We don't know why they pass by. All we can do is maybe examine our own minds. Maybe they thought, it's really none of my business. I don't know if he's a Jew or a Samaritan, a leper, a prostitute. I don't know. He's not part of my temple. He's not part of my church. He's not a member. I don't have time for this. It's not my problem. In fact, I've got bigger problems of my own. It's too dangerous for this. And then Jesus brings us to the third passerby. And in doing so, he turns the tables once again. This time, Passerby is not a religious leader, but a Samaritan. As Chad mentioned a couple weeks ago, the Samaritans were among the least respected people by the Jews. Samaritans were part Gentile, part Jew. They interbred. Therefore, they were considered unclean, and they would be avoided by Jews. I wonder who is in our culture that you think that we should avoid because they're unclean. 
This is a twist in the story that the attorney, that the lawyer would not have expected. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring out oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. The Samaritan saw the dying man, didn't cross the other side, went to the dying man, bound up his wounds, put him, his, put him on his donkey, which means that the Samaritan man had to walk, took him to an inn, stayed the night with him at the inn, paid what was owed to stay there, two denarii was equivalent to two days' wages, and told the innkeeper, whatever else he owes, however long his stay is, I'll pay him. And paying this man's debt was significant because there was no bankruptcy back then. The man would have to sell himself into slavery. If he had a debt to pay his debt, if he couldn't pay it. This compassionate act of mercy had a sacrificial cost. And the Samaritan was willing to pay it. Yet this merciful act didn't prove. The point wasn't that the Samaritan was a kingdom citizen, but it was a brilliant yet scandalous example that illustrates to the lawyer as to what neighborly love looks like and how he fell short of inheriting eternal life. Jesus, now in verse 36 and 37, applies the parable. And here we're going to see the gospel if you look close enough. It's my job. Verse 36. He asks, Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robbers? Jesus reframes the discussion by asking the expert the asking the expert in law, asking the question that the expert in law should have asked. Instead of asking, who should I love as a neighbor, he should have asked, to whom can I be a loving neighbor? To whom can I be a loving neighbor? The lawyer answered correctly, but the irony is that he could not even say Samaritan. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Full circle. This is not Jesus' ultimate answer to how I can inherit eternal life. But actually how not to. For those who have yet to come to Christ, the way to find eternal life is not to show mercy to other people. It's to embrace the mercy of God. We see the source of eternal life illustrated in this parable. The source of eternal life is a person, not a to-do list. The source of eternal life is the good Samaritan who saw us when we were helplessly and hopelessly dead in our sins. You see, this good Samaritan was an outcast, despised by many. He had compassion on us and mercifully came and bound up our wounds and paid for our sin so that we would owe nothing. The Good Samaritan is a picture of Jesus, and the half-dead man is a picture of you and me, helplessly and hopelessly dead in our sins and trespasses. There are massive implications for us today. 
This is a reminder, Christian, that you have received eternal life. You have received kingdom citizenship. And it's a result of nothing that you did. Jesus extended rich mercy and neighborly love to us when we were helpless and hopeless and dead messengers. Let me read Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he had with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Christian, you have inherited eternal life by God's loving mercy. You've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. But you have been recreated to live out the law of love, the great commandment. Not to gain anything. You are fully and forever loved. The call is for you and me to go and do likewise. To be a neighbor who extends mercy to the helpless and hopeless that God has providentially put in your life. So to whom? Today and tomorrow and next month. To whom is God calling you to be a neighbor to? Eternal life is inherited through neighborly mercy. And neighborly mercy is our right response for our eternal inheritance. And I just want to say a couple more things. There's this wonderful quote by a well-known pastor that says this, that God cares about suffering. He cares about all people suffering, especially eternal suffering. The eternal suffering, the remedy for eternal suffering is the word of God, it's the gospel. But God is, God is in the business of drawing people to himself. You can't force anybody or convince anybody but we can serve them. We can come to their aid when they are hopelessly and hopelessly suffering. And I don't know how it works in God's economy, but when we serve people expecting nothing in return, even people we serve people that they would expect us to, to hate them, somehow the Lord softens their heart to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those of you that hear who are still trying to be good enough. You see, you're, you're asking the question, what do I need to do to get eternal life? I can tell you it's not grading your performance on a sliding scale because you'll fall short just like me every single time. So if you've not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're still measuring your good works on a sliding scale and seeing yourself better than most, I would encourage you to release that and trust that Jesus finished on the work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be
Jesus are thinking that, that you who were a sinner became our sinner, that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you that your perfect life was accounted to us as if we lived perfectly. And that your sacrificial death was accounted to us as you died the death that we deserve to die. And I thank you that you um, have bound up every one of our wounds. God, we're, we're still sufferers on this rock. There's so many people here that are in pain. They feel hopeless and helpless. God, I pray that I think there's so many prayers I have for you. I just pray that we can remind you of your good mercy this morning. That you came and forgave us for sins. And we were dead for the sins of trespasses. You paid all of our the debt that stood against us. Past, present, and future. And I pray, Lord, that we would just be held by your mercy to extend mercy to others. God, I pray that not just for me and not just for the individual, but for this church. I pray for the greater church, especially in America, that we be more for what we stand for and who it is that we worship, rather than pointing out all the sins in this culture. God, the only room for this broken and sinful culture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would embolden us who wants to go out serve and proclaim, expecting nothing in return, but hopefully that you would show